Kia ora and welcome to episode 62 of Better Off Red. My name's Pip Adam and in this episode I talk to Brandy Scott about her debut novel, Not Bad People. I first met Brandy um, when she came to New Zealand to complete her MA at the IIML. I've always enjoyed talking to Brandy about writing and reading. Um, I still get a little bit of a um, Brandy hit um, every now and then um, when I tune into um, the live stream of the radio show she hosts in Dubai, which is a breakfast show which has a focus on business. Um, yeah, so I always enjoy talking to Brandy and I particularly enjoyed talking to her about Not Bad People, which is a, just an incredibly clever and compelling novel. Um, I'm just going to read the synopsis for the novel because I realised that in our talk we dive straight into talking about structure and craft and that sort of thing. So, Not Bad People. It's New Year's Eve. Three 30-something women, Amy, Melinda and Lou, best friends for decades, let off sky lanterns filled with resolutions for meaning, for freedom, for money. As the glowing bags, bags float away, there's a bright flare in the distance. It could be a sign of luck, or the start of a complete nightmare that will upend their friendships, families and careers. The day after their ceremony, the newspapers report a small plane crash. Two victims pulled from the wreckage, one a young boy. Were they responsible? Amy thinks they are. Melinda won't accept it, and Lou has problems of her own. It's a toxic recipe for guilt trips, shame, obsession, blackmail and power games. They're not bad people, but desperate times call for desperate measures. So that's Not Bad People by Brandy Scott, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you. Kia ora. how are you Brandy? Uh, kia ora. I am fabulous. Yay, we are um, sitting in a room and it's a little bit of a grey Wellington day. I packed for a heatwave. Yes, we were having a heatwave until about two days ago, it's like that. <laughs> now I've borrowed a jacket and bought emergency jeans. I think that's the only way to go, it's the only way to go. I wish I had emergency jeans. Um, yeah, so we are um, really excited, thank you so much for your time today, um, that you've come in to talk about your fantastic novel not bad people it's just magnificent thank you it's so weird can I just say to be back in the IIML rooms where I spent a year writing it's do you know what it's a really happy memory though I feel very fond and very peaceful to be in here oh that's so nice and we, we haven't got any blossoms for you today I'm very sorry about that the rain kind of saw to that so you're you're sort of um, touring all around at the moment with Not Bad People, eh? You've been in Australia, is that right? I have. I've been through Melbourne and Sydney doing a lot of interviews and doing a lot of book signings. And as an author, you will know that book signings are great because it means they can't return them, which means they're sold. <laughs> and then Auckland and New Plymouth and now Wellington. Oh, it's so great to have you here. And you've got your uh, like um, Wellington launches next week, eh? It is. On the 26th, we're going to be at Unity celebrating the book. Yay. Come along. It'll be fun. So I sort of wanted to start the conversation about the book with the title, Not Bad People. It just seems like such a perfect title to me. And... Um, I, I wonder if that's a place to start talking about where the idea of the book came from. This idea of badness and not badness and when bad behaviour might be okay in situations. Is that an idea that was there from the start or like what, what was sort of the gem of the idea that sparked the book? Okay, so two answers to that. The gem of the idea that actually sparked the book, literally sparked the book, was actually incredibly 
practical. I got invited to a letting go ceremony where a group of women, I only actually knew two of them very well, but there was quite a group of us, were writing down things that we wanted to let go of and we were attaching them to Chinese lanterns or sky lanterns and letting them off from quite a posh house, it must be said. And I saw them sort of disappearing into the distance and I just thought, I wonder what would happen if they hit something. <laughs> and that's the sort of thought you have if you are either a psychopath or an author. And mm, mm. that's exactly where the idea came from. And that's pretty much the first couple of scenes of the book. So very practically, that's where it began. That was the idea. And I wasn't sure whether they would cause a bushfire or what kind of accident they would cause. But that's where the idea came from. But in terms of the title, I am... I don't believe that there is such thing as, like, sort of truly, truly, thoroughly bad people, apart from in Disney movies, mm, personally. Mm, mm. And when you're writing, I'm far more interested in very normal people who are faced with tricky situations or tricky dilemmas and seeing how they act. I'm not particularly interested in the moment at, at sort of damaged characters and, and unreliable narrators. And I'm more interested in people who are quite normal um, and whose backs are against the wall. Mm, mm. And that's, I mean, I always think about that, um, I think it's a Roger McGee, it's, it's sort of in a script writing thing, this idea of kind of chasing your characters up a tree and then throwing stones at them, because, <laughs> you know, a lot of these characters are pushed into quite difficult situations, eh? Well, you can't love them, can you? Well, that's what I, I was going to ask you that. Um, I do... I did find myself being on side with them, even when they were against each other. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I still could see, you know, I still was on board with them. How do you manage that when you're not writing, you know, sort of Pollyannas that are wandering around um, feeding the young and, you know. <laughs> do you know, the greatest compliment that I get about this book is that people say, oh, my loyalties kept changing. Yeah. I really, you know, Amy was driving me nuts. The publisher and my agent read it as it was being written. Mm. And they were both just like, oh, Amy is so infuriating. And then your sympathies towards her change. And the same with all of the characters. You know, you're in their corner and then they do something and you're like, no. And then you change loyalties. And that I didn't do on purpose because I don't think I would know how to do it if I did it on purpose uh, but it is the greatest compliment that anyone gives me about mm. the book mm. so how do you just talking about that writing process were you did it feel um uh, I don't want to sound too like California feeling but did the did you sort of realize what the next scene to write was when you always. were writing that first draft yeah always I was writing and I I always do write, she says, says the woman who's written one novel for a, a, a thesis and one novel that's been published. I always um, write in a linear mm -hmm. fashion. Mm. Only because I've tried to write a book before and have done that same thing where you write the really wonderful juicy scene that's not coming for six chapters. And by the time you get there, everything's different and you have to throw the lovely juicy scene in the bin. And I always knew which one would come next because you're changing point of view with mm, the, mm, the change mm. of each scene and I love doing that and it just seemed quite obvious that it had to where it had to follow on from but you have the lovely refreshing change of POV so you don't feel like you're just writing for ages and ages and ages that is that's another thing I'm really I think is one of the main like just the complete successes of this novel is that the control of the point of view I found really interesting as well like 
um, you seem to have this ability to decide exactly who the right person to show a scene from is. Is that a decision that comes naturally, do you think, or is it something that, as you read over, you think, oh, actually, I want to limit it to Amy, or I want to limit it to Melinda, or something like that? I didn't change the point of view of any scene when I was writing, but it seemed quite obvious that the person who was either in the heart of the action, or whom knew stuff that the only way we could know it was to be in their point of view, would be next. And sometimes the decision was forced by, well, it can't be that character. Mm, mm. <laughs> so it's got to be one of the other two. Yeah. And the other one's in another building. And you just have to make it work. But I really, I'm not a first person writer. All of the eyes, eyes, eyes makes me feel a bit self-conscious. Mm. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I totally know what you mean. <laughs> just, um, and I, think, I don't know if that's quite a Kiwi thing, but it just makes me feel like I'm, I'm just using the word I too much. It must stop. <laughs> so I, and I love the revolving third person because I just love having that that break and that that change it's refreshing for the writer as much as anything else because mm. it is incredibly um that's the thing that i found really interesting is with that balance as well as there wasn't a point where i was thinking oh with some other books that i've read i sort of thought i'll oh, get me out of this person's point of view but with this i was kind of like you've got this great knack it, i think it's a narrative kind of knack to just leave me wanting more each time do you think that comes from reading it can only come from reading mm. It can only come from reading and binge reading. (laughs) And I mean, you've just done that great interview with Unity Books. And so what sort of writers sort of, you know, form the soup of this book, do you think? Okay, bearing in mind that if you asked me an hour, I could name another five or six writers. And if you asked me an hour after that, I could another. (laughs) Because I read widely and I, yeah, I'm, um, my bookshelves are heaving. I really, really love Meg Wolitzer, and I really loved The Interestings, mm. which was one of my favourite books. And I mean, she, craft-wise, she's just off the planet. And the thing about The Interestings is where she manages to go between, you know, the psychic distance between the present day and then what's the past story, and then you're reading something and you think it's the present story, and then it leaps and you realise that actually that present story, the past story, is just... I mean, I don't even know how she does that. It's just <laughs> magnificent. But I loved... One of the things I'm fascinated with, and it's cropped up in nearly everything I've written, is the econ- it's economics, basically. I mean, I'm a business journalist by trade, of what you've got and what I've got. And I'm kind of measuring what you've got and hang on, but we went to the same sort of school, so how have you ended up here and I've ended up there? And my characters do sort of assess each other financially and, and in stages of life. And I really loved that about the interestings. I think that's why it's a book that I absolutely adore. Ditto Commonwealth by Anne Patchett. Anne Patchett would probably be my favourite writer. But my all-time favourite book, you know how we all have one that we've loved for 25 years and you can pick it up and open it up anywhere and it's not necessarily going to win the Booker Prize anytime soon, but you've just got this emotional attachment to it. And for me, it's a book called Welcome to Temptation by Jennifer Creasy. And it is commercial fiction. It's a romance but it's got all of the ingredients that I love. It's got the economics in it. It's got the, you know, money. Blood and money, as Grace Paley would say. Mm, it's, mm. Well, every story has to have them. You know, it's got the small town community under pressure. It's got people pushed close to, to one another. It's got resentment. I love a bit of resentment. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me so happy. A bit of underlying resentment that's been there for 15 years. Uh, and that, I think, is the book that I didn't realise had shaped most of my writing, but I think it has. 
Oh my god, that's so great. That's really interesting what you say about the economics. That I mean, that I, I particularly enjoyed. Um, there are three main characters in this book, and they've been friends for a long time. There's Amy, who um, is the wife of Nick and has two children, and um, they live on Nick's family vineyard. Is that how you say it? Vineyard. Thing. It's a vineyard, but it's also a winery because they make wine. Thank you. Um, and then you've got um, Lou, who has a daughter called Tansy and had that daughter quite early on, like she was a teenager when she had that daughter, and has always struggled financially. And then you've got um, Melinda, who feels very self-made and runs Love Locked, which is, um, it's, it's how would you describe it? It's a multi-level Locked? marketing Yeah, scheme. she says it's not, but I couldn't yeah. stop thinking, gosh, it feels a lot like it. I wrote, I wrote, when I wrote the book, I had a number of people I knew who were involved in multi-level marketing yeah. schemes, and I was a bit borderline obsessed with them. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. Um, have you listened to the podcast, The Dream? I have. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I, I wrote it, I listened to the podcast after this book was, was written, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> but I was just obsessed with the Facebook feeds of people I knew yep. that were all like, look at me lying on a sun lounger with my laptop working by the pool, um, emoticon, 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 just thinking, ah! It's so exciting because I think um, this idea of finance is so interesting, well, economics in the book is so interesting because you've got this idea of old money, well, maybe I've got this wrong, but you can correct me, but you've got sort of Amy who's sort of bought into old money, you've got Lou who is struggling and but has the house that her parents gave her and then you've got this kind of new financial way you know which seems so interesting and that is where a lot of the resentment comes in the relationship like they've been friends for 30 years eh? yeah yes and I, I mean I'm, we're calling it economics and that sounds like we're talking about money aren't we yeah I mean, money, we're talking about money, money. Right, yes, yes. and <laughs> I I'm fast you know what I'm fascinated by it, and it's quite an unfashionable thing to admit that you are fascinated by but I wasn't a natural business journalist and I've been a business journalist f- mainly for 20 years and I've tried to escape several times I've gone mm. off and been a features editor and I've been dragged sort of <laughs> kicking and screaming back um, by the way in the mo- times of financial crisis a business journalist is an excellent thing to be because they can't fire you because you're the only one who knows where the stock market is it's really <laughs> handy but I never wanted to be a business journalist mm. and one of my editors explained to me very early on that absolutely everything we do is an economic choice mm. everything you buy or don't buy it's a vote. It's an economic vote. And it speaks volumes about us, you know, and, and about our ethics and beliefs and the fact that you're sitting here with a refillable water bottle. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Rather than just picking up a plastic bottle from the, the supermarket. And, you know, it, it doesn't just speak about what you're spending your money on, but what you spend your money on tells me about who you are and, and what you believe in and what's important to you. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm so interested in money. And I mean that I think this is one of the things I mean this is a this is a big obsession of mine and what I loved about the book is it's not I really love the intricacies that went into with the jobs people did you know and even to the point where Amy um you know Amy is very in the community you know is doing a lot of work but it's that sort of weird unpaid yeah. work that we rely on in society and that no one else in the book considers work because they don't think she does anything yes and I loved that I just loved how you managed to really respect all the work and yet there was still room for the others to feel you know like yeah and I I absolutely love what you said there and you're the first I've done a bunch of interviews over the, over the last three weeks you're the first person to actually 
pick up on it when you say Melinda thinks she's self-made. Yes, yeah. Because yeah. her background yep. is a mammoth leg up, isn't it? <laughs> yep, it really is. Yeah. And, and yeah, and, like, I think, um, yeah, and, and that's what I thought was really interesting about it. It's just so great. And the book never questions whether she is or not. It just no. puts the facts out there that she's, you know, being interviewed all the time as this entrepreneur and she's on the front of magazines because she's filling a, a niche at the moment, isn't she? You know, she's mm. a successful single female entrepreneur who's, you know, taken on a boys game and one sort of thing. Um, and she describes herself as self-made and the media describes her as self-made. But we know enough about her background and her family's finances to know that she's always been in a position of privilege. Mm. And there's that interesting part, I won't, I won't give it away, but there's a very interesting part in the book where she takes on someone else's story and sort of turns that in a really interesting way. And I just think, oh, she's just fantastic. Like that whole, they're all fantastic. How do you, how do you write? These women are all very distinct and I would... I, I mean, I know a little bit about you, and I would, well, I know that you don't own a multi-level marketing. Um, <laughs> how do you write characters that come from such different backgrounds, or come from, have different experience to you, or, yeah, how does one do that? Oh, they flesh out as you write, mm -hmm. do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. They start a bit flat, and they kind of puff up, a bit like me writing the book on minstrels. I started eight kilograms lighter when I started <laughs> writing the book. And by the end of it, I too was a fully fleshed three-dimensional character like my characters. But I was a bit... Funny enough, if I was going to do anything again, and you know how you edit the book and it's a year after you've written it, mm -hmm. and I edited this twice. So we edited it for the Australian market, and I realised how many Britishisms were in my speech because I did my undergraduate oh, in the UK. Yeah, yeah. And you just don't realise it creeps in. And I'm an expat, so yeah. lots of language creeps in. And then the moment that was finished, I had to sit down and edit it again for the Americans. And all of a sudden, all the Australianisms had to die and, you know, pavements and sidewalks and nappies and diapers and all the rest of it. But you're... A, and all of a sudden, there was all this stuff that I wanted to change. And my agent sort of said, yeah, that's because when you, you're you a better writer now mm. than you were a year ago when you wrote the book and leave it because <laughs> that's always going to happen. And that distinctness between the, the characters, to get back to your point, is something that... I don't know if it's normal to be not a little bit critical of a book once you've finished it. And I haven't picked it up, opened it and read it since it's been printed and I have no desire to. But I have read a couple of Goodreads reviews, which I know I shouldn't, that have sort of said, mm, it does seem a little bit like there are three stereotypical characters. And that was never my... You know, I didn't want to have the married one and the single one and the successful one and the not successful one. And I feel like I've done that in a little bit of a way. And... Oh, and it makes me cringe. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I feel like... I don't feel like that at all. Like, I feel like they're extremely distinct and, and very um, very multifaceted. You know, like, you think one person is going to think one thing, but they don't. You know, I, th I think it's really successful. But I do... I'm always wondering about this if it is the... Um, if it's like the Sex and the City syndrome. You know, like, women are read as stereotypical even when they're not stereotypical do you know what I mean okay, like for yeah. years we've had a series where there is you know this one this one and this one and um I always think of Charlie's Angels there's always <laughs> like the blonde and the brunette um that's the two types of women in the 1970s um but I just do wonder if sometimes it's if it's something attuned in readers rather than I didn't feel that at all in well, the text. thank you and I have stopped reading 
Goodreads yes, because I, I have been instructed to, to step <laughs> off Goodreads, get away from Goodreads. It's a whole new level of hell. But I think, do you know what it is? That someone, someone wrote on Goodreads, the last thing I saw on Goodreads was someone had written, just like Moriarty, but nowhere near as good. And I was saying to my agent, I'm going to get like a t-shirt printed up. Because yes. it's not just like, like Leah Moriarty, but not as good. Nowhere near as good. I, Bloody I want that on a t-shirt or a, a tote bag. My one is, um, someone said that I was no, oh, I can't even remember. I think it was like no Elliot or something like that. So I'm thinking I might get that printed. We you should, there should be a range. Yeah, <laughs> a range of t-shirts. Yeah, it's got to be good. But I, what you say about how, you know, fiction, you end up with these distinct characters. When you actually think about it, what is the alternative? Yes. If I had three brunette women who were all doing exactly the same things with their lives and thought exceptionally the same way and were having the same dilemmas with their jobs or their partners or whatever it was, it would be incredibly boring to write <laughs> and it would be really difficult to read because the whole time you'd just be like, is that Sarah or is that Sue? <laughs> this is the one thing that I loved about it is that I, I, have, I, often, used, I often have to have a little code at the start of all mm-hmm. books because I'm not good at remembering people. But this one, I always knew exactly where I was. You know, the, the, there was a slight, even though it's told, like you say, it's not first person, but there's a distinct voice to each of them. Did that kind of, I suppose that just came as well. It, it did, but I also kept sort of a sheet on each character right. that I updated as I was going. Mm. And I am quite conscious of the language, yeah. both that they use in speech and then also in that lovely sort of free and direct speech, third person, you know, not their brain, not the author's brain, somewhere in between type thing. Where Amy, I've given the overthinking and the constantly debating and weighing up of, and she's got quite long sentences and they yeah. run on and they yeah. often don't finish because that's how her brain works. Whereas Melinda has the much shorter sentences, even her thinking is a lot more decisive. There's a lot more two-word sentences when it's in, in Melinda's point of view because that is how she thinks. Whereas Lou's just sweary. Yeah. <laughs> really like that. Lou must be great. You must get to Lou and like, Argh. she's so great. Um, This book talks about friendship in an interesting way. Um, and... Yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like, these are long-time friendships, and into these friendships comes this crisis, you know, that that one person feels is more of a crisis than the other two, and then on top of that, you kind of lay more trouble. Um, I guess Damien Wilkins always used to have that idea of why now, and I just wonder how yeah how do you decide where in the life cycle of a friendship to sort of come in do you think the friendship thing is really interesting and that was one of the things that I was interested in examining from the start the idea of when you have really old friends and these are small town friends and I was I grew up in a small town I grew up in in Hawara in Taranaki where you often get thrown together with people because they live near you and your parents can be bothered dropping you off or picking you up. Do all your parents get on with their parents? Do you know what I mean? Yep. It's not always the people that you you would have chosen for yourself. Your friendships of convenience. And when you have grown up with people and you've known them for 20, 30 years, you treat them worse than you treat your newer friends. Mm. Like mm. we make an effort with our new friends. Mm. It's like dating. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> we try and be riveting and yep. sparkling and we, you know, offer them our bed when they come to stay and we sleep in the lounge. And I feel like our old friends we take 
we treat them like family because like, mm. we know they're not going to go anywhere right mm. so we can be rude to them and we can insult them and we can say what we really think and I loved writing the dialogue between these three for exactly that because they have become like family and we know they're not going to ditch us if we behave outrageously mm. yeah I just I really love that about it like it feels like and I think also the age that they are is such an interesting age as well you know like they're sort of they're like 36 Six thirty-seven, eh? And like that's a very interesting age as well. Do you well, things talk about start that? getting solidified. I feel like at the end of your thirties, you start realizing whether you are maybe likely or likely not to have kids. I mean, that's been pushed out a couple of years now, but even so, that's the time where you start thinking it might not actually it might not happen, mm. or you realize that the career that you're in is probably the career you're going to stay in do you know what I mean and I feel for a lot of us we're still expecting this mammoth change like I'm still many mornings I'm still waiting for my life to start I'm thinking what will I be when I grow up yes (laughs) I can relate but it's at this age that you start realizing that that stuff is maybe less likely to change than when you were younger Mm. and that is a whole um different mindset eh? you start to look at things very differently yeah that's really interesting can we talk a little bit about um Hensley which is it's a fictional town where the weather and it's in Victoria right yes. I don't know my Australian geography it feels I just I kept thinking how perfect this landscape was for the story and how perfect the this I, I'm using inverted commas but like the culture of that area it just seems so perfect and with Melbourne they're very close but it's the smallest town what led to that do you know practicality yep. led to it more than anything else for the first two or three chapters of this book I was actually thinking of the wire wrapper mm-hmm. and sort of the the string of towns that got grey town those those two or three when you come over um, the ranges there and I wrote the first two or three chapters as though it was the wire wrapper because I'd spent some time um, previously running an artist retreat just oh, outside yeah. of Ekaterina, the New Zealand Pacific studio there and so I kind of had that landscape in my mind for reasons of practicality and it is was solely because the the lanterns and this isn't a spoiler I thought it was going to be a play a bigger part in the book and it didn't the lanterns are illegal in Australia and they're not here in New Zealand I mean they're widely don't do it kids <laughs> and there are areas that you're not allowed to let them off but that blanket sort of ban is in Australia and I thought that the illegality I thought there were going to be much I'm trying not to give anything away anyway I thought it was going to be a huge part it's a medium part yeah and but that's why I moved it to Australia and I've got godchildren who were in Melbourne and they're now in a farm out in Euroa um, in the same sort of area that this book is written and so I'm an expat anyway so everywhere's a little bit foreign so it didn't seem that big a deal to move it to Australia but I did take a month off work and a friend gave me a car and I just drove around country Victoria for a month and it was awesome and I made up my own town so I took bits from other small towns in Victoria for anyone who knows the area from Echuca the river Beechworth is kind of where the um, streetscape came from because it's beautiful uh, Heathkit and the MacIver Ranges are the hills and I just made my own oh it's so good and and like it must be interesting is it I mean is it interesting being someone from I'm just thinking I can't stop thinking that you and Ronald Hugh Morrison yes he's Howard's I think you're the only two authors I know from Howard I think my father would like to keep his house and not have it replaced by a KFC (laughs) 
I agree. I think everybody would like that. Although, KFC kind of tastes good. Um, what's it like? I mean, this is a stupid question because, I mean, what's a piece of string like? But what's it been like talking about a book that's set in Australia as a New Zealander? Is it? I thought that people, and I'm about to go speak to Radio New Zealand this afternoon, so maybe I shouldn't speak too soon, but I thought that I thought that people would pick up on that a lot more than they actually have. Mm. And I've done a bunch of interviews and podcasts and everything in Australia and met booksellers all over the place, wonderful, wonderful bookstores, and no one asked. And I was really prepared. And I wonder if the shoe was on the other foot, and tell me what you think, if I was an Australian who had written about a fictional... New Zealand town, often with criticism. How do you think we'd take it? I really don't know. I think it's a really interesting question. And I can think of a couple, I think you can think of a couple of situations where that's happened. Actually, yeah, I'm not sure. I think, I think you could Because it's right. tricky, but it's, it but it's tricky. a tricky one full stop. But I kind of thought if I'm, you know, I want to write a book. Yeah. <laughs> and I've spent a year, as Emily Perkins put it, sort of at architecture school, learning yeah. to build a, the house that is a novel. And... I'm an, an expat, you know, I don't, I live in Dubai, but I'm not of Dubai, and I've spent time in a lot of other places, and so it kind of is stick a pin in the map, to mm. be honest. It's kind of exciting, though. Very. I think that's really exciting, it's sort of, yeah, I find that really exciting. Oh my gosh. I hope no Australians are listening to this podcast and oh, will pick up on the fact that I'm not, because I think a lot of people just thought I was an Australian. Well, you know, there are worse things to be mistaken for. <laughs> I totally think there are worse things. Um, now, in the acknowledgement, just talking about that driving around, in the acknowledgements you talk a lot about the research that went into the book. Do you write hand in hand with the research? Do you research first? Do you write the whole book and then research after? I mean, that makes it sound like there's only three choices, but yeah, can you yeah. talk a little bit about the research? I did, I would say I did, oh, I did 70% of the research either first or in the, whilst writing the first half of the book. Mm-hmm. And it was purely practicality. Yeah. I could take a month off work over Christmas and drive around. And at that stage, I was probably 40 50% of the book was written. I did a lot of interviews at the start. And again, it was just because I met someone who was an aircraft accident investigation lawyer from Australia who was in Dubai. Yeah. And so I said, this is my scenario. Let's have lunch. And can you tell me what you think might have happened? And he turned up with a load of CASA accident reports and talking through all the things that they look for when they're investigating, which was fascinating. Yeah. And it gave me so many plot ideas and also red herrings and mm. just the things that could go wrong and things that they would be investigating and searching for, like what well, would go through your phone records and say, who were you talking to at two in the morning and maybe you were sleep deprived when you were flying. And I'm like, oh, that's good, that's good. You know, and you, I hadn't expected it to contribute to the plot and the plot possibilities so much the research mm. because I'd had other people say to me that they do it at the end because they don't want to get bogged down by it and they don't want it to start reading like a textbook halfway through and I found the exact opposite doing it at the beginning just gave me so many ideas and halfway through when I was driving around Victoria I was sitting with people who make wine and, and grow grapes and asking them about their lives and convincing them to let me go out and go like leaf tucking for a day so that you know what it feels like you know physically and and all the rest of it and uh pilots as well I was in Echuca and I looked up and there was this small plane I saw overhead and I thought well there's got to be an airport right so you know the GPS in the car went and sat at the airport and waited for the guy Andrew to land 
and then proceeded to a talk him into taking me up mm. which he couldn't take any money for because that would change him from being a recreational pilot to a commercial pilot so oh, my because right. it's not cheap right yeah fuel and die the plane so i was like well at least let me pay for it and he was like no, i can't so bless him you know flew me around for free i've sent him a copy of the book and I think financially I did better out of the deal Um, but then also answer my whatsapp questions for the next six months but I just I hadn't expected the research to be a so much fun Mm. and be just so generative and so I've started plotting the next book now and when I was in Australia I've been sitting with people in the area that I'm writing about and I've started doing the research, and I haven't written a word of the book. I've written the synopsis. I've mm. done loose plotting. But I'm doing that first because I know now how much it can throw in in the way of, of plot possibilities. Mm. Man, that just sounds so exciting. One of the really interesting things about the acknowledgements as well is that you acknowledge, sorry, I'm going to keep using that word, um, that you know there are places where you knew what would happen in the real world and then you made decisions about the world of Hensley and the, the world of not bad people. Can you talk a little bit about those decisions? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, because they were the hardest thing about the book. Yeah, yeah. I, and I have to put this in context here, one of the characters in my book, Amy, um, I hate the word suffers from anxiety because it makes me think that you're sitting in a corner like rocking. Um, but she she had, has anxiety. I don't even love the possessive, to be honest. Yes. She is not unfamiliar with anxiety. <laughs> and neither am I, basically. So I did use some of my own experiences. I used to work in print journalism. Um, I was wrecked by anxiety and what I thought I could get wrong might get wrong when I was writing in print, which funny enough isn't there now that I work in radio, which mm. is marvellous. But I gave that to Amy, and there's something cathartic mm. about giving something that you've struggled with to a fictional character and getting it out there on the page. And in writing this book, the writing of it was just, it was so much fun. Like, it was so much fun. And then, and I actually got through it and thought, I've, I've written that book, and I haven't had a freak out. Like, this is awesome. We've, we've cracked it. We're over the other side of the mountain. And then... We got to editing it, and I just started overthinking it, and I started worrying about getting things wrong, and you are always going to get things wrong. And some of the decisions that I had made for plot reasons, just because they were better for drama, and if you try and make everything absolutely true to life, then you just have to do an awful lot of explaining, which is just clunky and, and heavy and stops the narrative. And so I'd already decided when I was writing, no, I should be right, I'll just put it like this, I'll put it like this. And then I was like, but I'm allowed to. And I think it's also partly being a, a journalist mm. is that you're used to, to making sure everything factually is, is right. And my poor agent, bless her, just spent, and it's not an exaggeration to say hours, on the phone to me just going, it is fiction. It is fiction. <laughs> you are not writing an article. It is fiction. And, and when she said, just, well, just write in the acknowledgements, you know, this would have been different in real life. Mm. The, the pilot thing, especially some of the decisions that are made around the flying the plane, you know, they, they work with the character and they mm. work with the, the story. And I made sure that everything that happens in the book could physically happen. Mm. Um, I took a writing course with Sophie Hanna a couple of years ago and she said, you just have to make sure. It's not whether people would do it or whether... And what she really means is whether your reader would do it. Mm. She said, it's whether 
it could happen. Could this physically happen? Then, then you're good to go. Mm. And there will always be readers who will say, but I would never drive from Auckland to Wellington. <laughs> you know, they would take a plane. And you just, you just have to let that, let that go. And I had, to, I had to try and change my journalism mindset to a, a fiction mindset. And then also battle with my little, I'm so scared of getting anything wrong and upsetting anybody and that's going to be horrible and then the world will end. Sort of, you know, a little character makeup as, as well. So that was a heap of fun. It just, I mean, that's what's so, it's so interesting what you're saying because, like, the book is so compelling. Like, I just, like, it, I hate that word page two minute. Well, I don't. I love it. You know, like, it, it really does. And I feel like there's nothing in there that I was questioning. You know what I mean? Like, the yeah. whole way through. And I think that's that thing, isn't it? You're building this tiny little world and that world has its own logic and it's just quite incredible as far as the compelling nature of it goes the pace of this book is incredible I don't think I'm very good at pace can you talk a little bit about that I haven't I didn't prepare you for this question so no so, you're yeah. fine but like how do you have thoughts on pace I think funny enough I had it I can remember having a chat with Catherine Carmody mm. a, a while ago um and talking about the difference between literary and commercial fiction, I mean, this is not literary fiction, this is commercial fiction with a giant capital glowing C. <laughs> um, but we were talking about what the difference was between the two, and I think she suggested that it might be pace, mm. one of, one of the, the many things. Um, I think what makes it, what helps make it pacey is that the way that it's written, and my writer... I, writing process, writing style, I don't know, the way I do things, is I write a scene and then the next day's writing session I go back and I edit the last scene, which usually chops a good 30 to 40% off it, and then I write the next scene. And then the next day I go back and I edit and cut down the scene before, and then I write the next scene. And it's like if you ever did sewing or cross-stitch at school, there was backstitch where mm. you went back and then you went forward and then you went back and then you mm. went forward... And I always think of backstitch when I'm writing this, and it means that you're always completely in the book because you've effectively spent two hours in the previous action, so you know exactly where to build in the next action, and it means there's less stuff you have to change at the end um, because there's less sort of wild swings of what people are wearing and saying and doing. (laughs) Um, But I think it also keeps it tighter Mm. because you're editing when you're still really close to the story, like you're still in the story, you haven't left it, six months um but you're also really critical because it's still a bit fresh and ugly to you yeah i i love that idea like um i just i think that that's right like i'm i'm in the process of editing something that i haven't done that with and i can totally see what you mean like it just gets excited with its own and and i can feel the shifts in my day in it as well Mm -hmm. you know like oh that must have been written on a sunny day that must have been written on a bad day and i think that it's not only is it the tightness in the book but it's also the your excellent judgment about when to add another layer you know what I mean? Like, there's some. I, one of the things I love about this is there's moments where Brent was in the other room and I literally went, oh! <laughs> he was like, he was like, what? I'm like, nothing, nothing. And you know, like, I just like, do, is that something that you that you plan out before you start writing, or is it something as you're reading you think actually I need to bring that a couple of pages forward? Or yeah, it's not hugely planned. I knew where I was roughly mm. going, mm. although I didn't actually know how it 
ended and I met the publisher because they HarperCollins bought this book when it was three chapters mm, mm. written and I had lunch with um, the publisher there probably when it was halfway done when I was driving around Australia and I just sat there in the whole of lunch thinking please don't ask me how it ends please don't ask me how it ends please don't ask me how it ends because I would not have had an answer and I had been thinking well what are you going to say and I thought well you kind of fudge it by being like there are several possibilities but did not know but I roughly knew the direction that it was going in Mm. and I just trusted that when I got to the end I would know the why Mm. Mm. and I think I I would never be the sort of person who could plan out every single scene for starters I think I would be bored Mm. but you just need to leave room for stuff to happen while you're writing because the I mean the real fun in writing comes when you're typing and you are because I type going oh 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 because all of a sudden Things are working, and you just have to trust your subconscious enough that it will put down all of those breadcrumbs, and it always does. It has never failed me that it puts down all of those breadcrumbs. And by the time you get to the point where you have to pick up the breadcrumbs, they make a loaf. I don't know. This is a really bad analogy, but but do like you know it. what I mean? You just have to be- believe that your subconscious will put in all the clues that it will be obvious because mm. that's what I love about it as well is that it doesn't feel um formula you know what I mean like it doesn't feel like oh here's the climax and here's this no bit. I mean it's just and I think that's I I would suspect that it's coming from that slight room that there is when you're writing it you have to leave room I mean yeah. I've I've planned out the next one I've written the synopsis because I love and this yeah. I think is, is newspaper journalism you know I have a headline I have what I call a stand face and stand first rather and and they've got a bunch of different words for you know and I I have the blurb written for the back of the book because I like knowing that it has um that sort of almost like a sales tool because I suppose it is but that I know that it's staky because what you're writing there for the blurb at the back of the books is the stakiness Mm, aren't mm, you mm. um and the one thing I learned writing this book as opposed to a previous book I'd written that, that didn't sell is this one's just got a lot more stakes. Mm. And if you're writing commercial fiction, you need stakes. And it's incredible as well because the stakes, um, what I think is so great about this is that what's important is controlled by the writing and the, and the character development and the situation. You know, like there's, there's an accident, you know, there's, a, there's you know, some terrible things happen. But then there's also very you know maybe a daughter wanting the love of a father maybe do you know what I mean like um these stakes uh they seem beautifully important no matter whether they would be seen in real life as small you know small stakes or large stakes they're not small stakes for the people no who are whose stakes they are though yeah that's what I think is so great about it I feel like I mean the best thing you can do is is shove stakes into your story and I can remember hearing years ago and I can't remember who it is which is such a shame but I can remember hearing a writer speak and say about how you needed to have two things you needed to have a situation and a story and I feel like for this book one of the things that made it well as relatively easy as a 136,000 <laughs> yeah. word book can be to write so relatively easy but one of the things that helped pull the story through was the fact that you you had the situation which is a plane has crashed and so by the end of the book we need to know who how what when why and that's your situation but you also have the story which is you have these three women who have grown up together which is a lot of time to get a lot of angry 
that hasn't come up to the surface. And when they're put under the pressure, you know, that is when all these other things come out. And that's the that's the meat, isn't it? Yeah. It's she so says true. to a vegetarian. <laughs> but it's so true. It's so true because I just think, oh, God, I just love it so much. But it's so much, It's as a writer, having that situation mm. almost imposes a timeline on it. Mm. Mm. You know, I mean, you, you were talking about the, the why now. The plane's crashed, that's where you start. Yeah. We know what happened, that's where you finished. Mm. And I love having... And I was at the, the Auckland Writers' Festival one year and Jane Smiley was there. And we did a, a masterclass with her, which was like... Ah! <laughs> um, because Moo is one of my favourite, favourite, favourite books of all times. And I can remember asking her about how you, you figure out where the, the box that you draw around your story is time-wise. And because the book I'd written before then was about a long weekend and so it's quite easy yeah do you know what I mean you you start on the Friday and you finish on the Sunday and you've got a a ready-made box for the story and she said there's always a time frame she said for Moo it was like an academic semester for Horse Heaven it was I think it was either the breeding season or the racing season whichever one I haven't read the book in a long time and I realized that for this yeah well actually because I initially worried that that I wouldn't have that box and the box makes it so much easier the time box and then I realized you know I do it's from the crash to when it's resolved Mm. and when we know what happened that's Mm. that's your time box and it's really great because that arc is kind of traveling through and then there's these other things surfacing almost in direct response to that even though each one of the women has a different attitude towards the accident and everything it's just yeah it's really well done um I don't, I didn't, this is another question I didn't send you, but I wonder, you talked about the book being bought by HarperCollins. I just wonder, can you talk a little bit about the business of writing? Or yeah, sure. Feel, yeah, it's totally cool if not, but yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you as much as I know, and I say that because I feel like I don't, I mean, you don't know very much, do you, before mm. a book gets bought about how it all works, mm. and you kind of find out along the way some of it almost accidentally and in fact I was in Unity yesterday and I bought a book that's put out by I think the New Zealand Publishing Association or something similar to that and it's you know it's not a big book but it basically was called and I'm making this up how publishing works in New Zealand and Australia (laughs) and I thought I should get that (laughs) I should also (laughs) and I brought it down and and there's loads of you know publishers and whatever and writers who've all written a chapter about um, how distribution works and how editing works and how printing works and I thought you know now that I have a book out, useful. <laughs> I should know these things. Because, I mean, but what would... I mean, I, you, you do your year's master's here, as I did at the IAML, and we had Fergus come to speak to us about the, the finances of publishing. And I've still got my notes from that, by the way, and some of the stuff that he's, he said um, I uh, still hold quite dear. But it's always going to be a, a learn-on-the-ground mm, mm. sort of job. So what happened? I had written a novel here at the IIML about um, called The Repatriates and I it had won a competition with a big mm. publisher and they were sort of having a look at it and there was a mentorship thing and they basically had a year to decide what they were going to do with it and we got to the end of the year and it didn't seem like kind of much was going to happen with it and so I found a New Zealand agent online and I wrote to her and said, I, I wrote this book, and I don't quite know what's happening with it, 
do, do you like it? <laughs> and she wrote back and said, I do. Um, she said, I'm not, let me, let me have a look, let me see what can happen. And um, she kind of established early on that the publishing company that had it, um, it wasn't right for them at that time, blah, blah, whatever. And so she was talking to other people about it and getting interested responses. They were like, oh, we like it, we might want to do this, and da, da, da. And then she said to me, almost as an aside, by the way, have you got anything else you're, you're working on? Because, you know, publishers like to see that there's a bit of a pipeline and, you know, that you've got more ideas. And I said, oh, yeah, no, I've got this. I've just started writing it. And it was two chapters long. And I sent it to her and she was like, yeah, I, I, I can probably sell that. And within, I think, three or four weeks, it was with acquisitions with HarperCollins. I was on holiday in Vietnam and it was a bit like, could you send some more? And I was like, <laughs> yes. And that's when it stopped being a holiday. <laughs> and I started typing. On your phone or no? No, I had the laptop, but it was a monsoon. And then the hard drive died. And I'm running in one of those like see-through emergency poncho things. And the gutters are flooding. And I don't have boots. And I was just a bit like, ah. Do you know what I mean? No, we don't know if we've got a hard drive in Vietnam. We might have to send it to Singapore. And I'm thinking, well, send me to Singapore. <laughs> but... Um, you know, the train got through yeah. and the laptop got fixed and you can type in the rain. That's quite good. <laughs> Just sat in coffee shops for two weeks and typed. And they took it and they took it early, which was a humongous um, vote of confidence on, on the part of Catherine and her team. And, I mean, you know that this is as much luck as anything else. Um, you're going to be more lucky the more prepared you are, such as having written something. <laughs> but the William Morrow is a, an imprint of HarperCollins, the, paper, the paperback imprint in America. And Carrie, um, one of the editors from William Morrow, happened to be at Australia because she was going to a literary festival. And so Catherine said, oh, I'm just reading this at the moment. What do you think? And so they did a, a joint sort of offer for it. Um, which obviously I took. To be fair, had they said, you're going to pay us to publish it, I would have said, <laughs> yes. Had they said, you're going to give us a kidney, I would have said, yes. <laughs> obviously none of those things happened and they made me an offer and it had money attached to it and it was absolutely everything that you don't even dare to hope will happen. Mm. But it feels to me like there's... It's such a fluky thing. It feels like winning the lottery over and over again. Like you have to, I mean, you have to buy a ticket, which is writing something. But, you know, it's, you know, will you find an agent and then will the agent get in front of write the person and then will someone be in Australia at the right time to, you know, like. That's fantastic. I mean, I think it's fully deserved as well. Like I know it's a pretty damn good lottery ticket. I think you, you wrote, is that, now I'm doing bad metaphors. You wrote a really good lottery ticket. Um, do you, that must have been awesome, like, um, like so that's that seems like at certain points of the book you had sort of quite a nice team there as well, right? That the nicest thing was okay, well there are many nice things. Yes. The first nice thing was that whole period of time and it stretched in the end over a couple of months because people are talking to people and then they're mm. taking it to acquisitions and then they're coming back and you know, was like Christmas. It was just like Every couple of mornings, I would wake up and there would be an email that was like, they're taking it to acquisitions. Acquisitions is interested. Sales want to know X. They like this. The Americans are interested. And it was just like, it was like, I walked around. I'm fizzing, fizzing for a couple of months as this good news just continued to like <laughs> flow in. And in fact, when it then stopped and I had to start 
writing the book. It was a bit like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> like, I got used to these mammoth, like, sort of dopamine serotonin yeah, rushes, and it was yeah. a bit like, do, do you not love me anymore? Yeah. <laughs> like, why is no one else buying this book? You know, which, is, which is just ridiculous. But it had been fabulous. But there was something... Because people have asked me, like writing friends have asked me, whether or not selling a book before it was finished made it harder or easier to finish it. Mm. People who know that I am a weeny bit prone to anxiety, which is like, did that not like freak you out? But the answer is absolutely not. Because writing something, and I, I made a conscious decision, by the way, about my mindset. Mm. I made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to look at it as, ah, you know, now I have to write a book. I made a conscious decision to look at it as how awesome to write a book knowing that someone wants it at the end. And I got to, ch- and, I, and I just decided that was going to be the mindset and I managed to stick to it because trust me, a lot of mindsets that I decide I'm going to have, such as, <laughs> you don't even like sugar, uh, don't stick. But it was so lovely to know that someone already wanted it mm. and it was all going to be great. And I got to choose how often I showed them. They were like, if you want to keep sending it back and forth and getting constant feedback or if you want to just give it to us at the end and have the element of surprise. And I went for a real halfway house, which was that halfway through writing it, I sent it all over and said, is this going in the right direction? Is this what you're expecting? Mm. And the answer was, you know, sort of a bit more of this, bit less of that. Interested in this, you could do this. But yes, widely yes. Mm. Minor sort of tweaks and suggestions for taking it forward. But on the whole, what you're doing is what we want. Just keep going. Mm. Uh, And then I gave it to them at the end without the final chapter. (laughs) Uh, And then then the final bit. That sounds amazing. So now, um, you know, you'll be here and then you're appearing at the, um, you're appearing at Dubai Festival as well. I am, yeah. yeah. So all that's happening and you have a job. Yes. So... And you have a new book. What it sounds like your job works quite well with writing. Is that am yeah, I? Yeah, just... it has. It has done. It has done because I present a breakfast radio show, and you. I mean, you wake up earlier than I would naturally like to in the morning, <laughs> but it also means that once you've you've done, I've. When I was writing this book, I had a good chunk of time in the daytime to write it before I had to sit down and prep again at night. But you also kind of for half the week you know you're great and it's working good and then you have a couple of bad nights sleep mm-hmm. and because you're waking up when it's still dark you know you're spending the rest of the day feeling a bit jet lagged so a lot of it got written I get very generous holiday time right in the UAE and we get a lot of sort of long weekends so I just haven't had much of a social life mm. for a year and I've just used every holiday I've gone on every long weekend I've just taken the book and I've just taken myself and no one else and you know and I've, I've done it in in nice places which is the other lovely thing about being an expat mm. um is that my job comes with you know it comes with a flight a year and it comes with six weeks off and you know which is fabulous so I've written the book in some lovely 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 locations um but you just kind of accept that that is going to be your spare time I mean I didn't see a movie for a year and a half you know and this is what I think I think this is the most important thing I wish someone had told me this years ago, is that I always am looking for the perfect writing schedule, you know, yeah. like, and the thing is that life isn't really like that, is it? No. You know, like, I, so if I do have a bad night's sleep, maybe I do editing the next day, or maybe I do, you know what I mean? Like, just instead of this thing of thinking, no, this is writing time, well, you know. I, do you know what, and I told myself, because the sleep thing for me is yeah. breakfast radio is, is, is huge, yeah. and 
I told myself that you can always do something. You know, maybe mm. today if you're naked, you're not creating, you're not writing new stuff. But you can always go and read on over the old stuff or you can always do a bit of research or you can always send those six emails to people that you've been meaning to send to check whatever. Do you know what I mean? You can always do something. And you know what? Reading is writing, mm. actually. Mm. And I've never been too tired to read. I really like that. I'm going to, yeah, I've got a friend... Um, He's an artist, and I remember um, his his partner's a writer, and I remember we were talking about it, and he has a studio, and he goes to the studio every day, even if he just moves the canvases around, you know, and I think that is something that I've tried to build in. Sometimes, I know this is so embarrassing, but sometimes if I'm even messing around with pagination or changing fonts or, you know, playing around with chapter headings or that sort of thing, I just think, yeah, I think it's a really good way to go. Um, We're almost at the end of the podcast um is there anything you wish someone would ask about this book (laughs) like there are a lot of things I'm very happy that people haven't asked about the book that's a good answer (laughs) um and there are if I was sitting down and writing it again um there are probably some minor things I would tweak but I I can remember do you know what I can remember sitting two rooms away from where we are now in the IIML and I can remember Elizabeth Knox speaking to us and saying to my yeah, um, to my master's class um, a, a novel no yes a novel is a book length work of fiction that has something wrong with it and I feel like that quote and I've written it down in a dozen notebooks you know since gives me permission to be like there'll be things wrong with it that's yeah. fine there will yeah. be things wrong with it which was her message there will always be be something be something wrong with it but it was just I just feel so lucky that it was so much fun to write. Mm. Like, how cool is that? To, to be able to do something like make a book and enjoy doing it? Like, that feels almost a, a bit too fortunate. <laughs> well, it's very enjoyable to read. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, I mean, it's just such a great read. I love it so much. Have a great launch next week. Thank you. I will see you there. Have a great trip back home. And thank you so much for your time. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast.